good morning. Um, our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then 16 through 21. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the very word of God. Well, we continue our study this morning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We've come now to chapter 6, and here we find more instructions on how we are to pursue the greater righteousness required to enter the kingdom of God. A 2018 Pew Research Center survey of religious belief and practices in Western Europe found that the majority of adults surveyed, I realized this was six years ago, so things may have changed, but it's not too long ago. Majority of adults in Western Europe, they were surveyed, claimed, still claimed a Christian identity. They still called themselves Christians, though they did not regularly attend church. What do we call self-identified Christians who do not go to church? Well, the Pew Research Center gave them a name, non-practicing Christians. Non-practicing Christians. According to Jesus, that is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. If Christianity means anything, the Sermon on the Mount has made it plain. It cannot be defined as something that one simply claims or even merely as something that one believes. Matthew 5, verse 20. We said this last week. We've said that actually the last two weeks. Matthew 5, 20 has set the theme for this entire center section, the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus says there in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse one of chapter six makes it clear that Jesus has not now changed the subject. Sometimes we Bible readers, we see chapter divisions and we think, okay, we're new chapter, new chapter. But of course, these are... Um, uh, these are not original to the, uh, the by biblical authors and what they wrote. So Jesus is still doing and talking about the same thing that he was talking about in the previous section. He's still talking about the kind of righteousness that is required, a kind of righteousness that includes what we would call religious activity, acts of piety, religious devotion. Jesus, in these verses, talks about giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Three common religious practices. They're not unique to Christianity. Virtually all religions in the world see these as acts of piety, acts of religious devotion. And as we look at these verses together, and as Jesus talks about the necessity of practicing your faith, being a practicing Christian, that's inherent to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we see in these verses, first, the honest motive of religion. Second, the inherent danger in religion. And by religion, I mean, again, religious practices, the act of practicing your faith. And then third, the proper practice of religion. So the honest motive of religion, the inherent danger in religion, and then the proper practice of religion. So first, what is the motive? I mean, the real, honest, sincere, right motive for why we religious people, can I call you that today? I mean, you're at church this morning, so you're doing a religious thing by, by coming to church. Why do you do it? What are you here for? I mean, what is the motive that we ought to have? I'm not talking about the wrong motives that we probably have going through our heads, but what, what, what's the honest motive? What are we here for? What is the reason that Jesus encourages the practice of our religion? And the answer to that question, in the, is, it's, it's in our passage. Did you hear it? Over and over again. You don't have to guess at this. Jesus isn't hiding it from us. We practice our faith. We religious people do religious things for a reward. Can we be honest? We have come to get something. Reward dominates these verses. It shows up over and over and over again. It is the theme of the passage that Megan read for us this morning. So, there is something to be gained by the practice of the faith. And Jesus says, that's right. That's the honest motive. We're wanting to get something out of our faith. Now, in the previous verses at the end of chapter 5, if you recall what we studied last week, Jesus taught his people to be perfect. Last verse of Matthew 5, we said that the word perfect there probably is not helpful to most of our thinking of what that word would mean. 
Jesus taught his people to seek completion, to seek wholeness as they sought to live out moral lives. Disciples of Jesus must be more righteous than even the Pharisees in that, this is what we talked about last week, in that they must reflect in their morality, in their ethics, the wholeness, the completeness of God himself. A God who is not, of course, measured by some standard that he has to live up to. There's no standards of righteousness that God has to come under and live up to. No, this is not merely about keeping the letter of the law, but going much, much deeper, much further, not further in more scrupulous ways of keeping the letter in even more detail, but further in exceeding righteousness in getting after the complete picture of what God's law was meant to do. This pursuit of a righteous life then, whether in matters of morals and ethics or in religious practice, is not to be framed merely as a way to avoid the catastrophe of being left outside the kingdom of God. It must also be seen with the honest motive that Jesus gives us here, the way to attain a reward, the reward that's found inside the kingdom of God. So much of Christian theology frames this as a promise of heaven and all of its delights or the threat of hell and all its torments. So righteous living is often impressed upon us either with the motivation of judgment. You don't want that. So this is what will happen if you act this way or don't act this way. Or with the motivation of reward. This is what you will gain if you act this way or don't act this way. And that's not far off from what Jesus is doing here. But the theme of the kingdom of God makes the threat and the reward more immediate than what may or may not await you after the grave. The righteous life that Jesus envisions here is, (laughs) it's the good life that everyone seeks Everyone seeks to live their life for reward, for goodness. Everyone is looking in all of their activity for the benefits, for the rewards. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is inviting us into a way of being, into a way of living. We said a few weeks ago, into a way of actually being human. That is all about entering into the reality of the kingdom of God now. There's another way now to be in the world now that Jesus has come. And the invitation is open. You can come. You can enter in. This invitation into the kingdom of God is an invitation to live by a different story than the story the world tells. And religious practices, are you with me here? Going to church (laughs) or the ones that Jesus mentions giving to the needy, prayer, fasting. Religious practice has to be understood within the story in order to pursue the rewards that it offers. You can't separate it from the story. You set religious practices apart from the story of the Bible, from the story of the kingdom of God, 
and you will not find the reward that you seek. So here is, before we even get to the real warning, here is a warning for all of us religious people, for all of you and for me. Here's a warning for our church. Our life together as Christians is a bold claim in the world. Just the fact that you showed up here today is proclaiming a story. It's sending a signal. It's sending a message to your neighbors, to our neighbors around us. It is a claim that life is better lived in the church. That's the claim. But this claim is valid insofar only as this church, this community, is shaped and formed around the story of Jesus. If you separate religious practice from the true story, you can say you go to church, you do religious things, but it's not a better life. It's not a better life than what the world has to offer. The claim is valid only insofar as the community is shaped around the story which happens to be the true story, the real story, the story of Jesus. Only on the basis of his story which reveals to us who we are and which has revealed to us what has happened in the world, only in that story is true community possible. Most people who say anything about Crosstown usually say that we're good at community. But this is why I'm warning us, brothers and sisters. The only kind of genuine community, true community, a way of living in the world that's better than anywhere else can only be shaped and formed insofar as it's shaped and formed around the story of Jesus. Forget the story which gives meaning to religious practice and all you have are stale, empty traditions and a Christian community that is losing its value for each other and for the world. Again, in the previous section, Matthew 5, 21 to 48, remember what we studied last week, the emphasis was on particular ethical practices, things like murder and anger, adultery and divorce, truth-telling and retaliation. The emphasis in this passage is on particular religious acts, Charitable giving, prayer, fasting. But this kind of way of distinguishing Matthew 5, 21 to 48 from the passage before us today, of making some distinction between ethics and religion, between morality and piety, both of these things, these kinds of distinction, is our way of categorizing these things. Jesus doesn't do that. He calls them all the practice of righteousness. The same words that are going on here. Both of these things are considered doing righteous acts, and both of them matter. We need to step back here and notice that many of us Christians have become skittish at the way that Jesus here motivates, the honest motivation. Jesus does not encourage religious practices such as charity, prayer, giving, uh, and fasting as goods in and of themselves. He encourages these practices because of the reward that we hope to get from doing them now 
and in the future. And the reason that he includes religious practice in the same category as ethical behavior, both, again, are the practice of righteousness, is because there is in Christian theology an unbreakable relationship between our relationship with God and with our fellow human beings. In Christian theology, there is an unbreakable relationship between our relationship with God and the pious acts that we do and our relationship with our fellow human beings and our ethical behavior. Piety, expressing our right relationship with God, is inseparable from virtue, expressing a right relationship with our neighbors. Consequently, if God is concerned as we learned last week, about us having heart-level ethics, wholeness, completeness, requiring that we do not just do the letter of the law, but actually fulfill all that the law intends, then you know what that means for your human neighbors? It means that your neighbor next door to you, who's not religious, who's not going to church today, whether they, they, they don't know this, but they actually have an interest in you having heart-level piety. They have an interest that your religious practice is not for show, but expresses true, whole-life devotion to God. So let me say that again. God cares that we not just avoid murdering our neighbor. We talked about that last week but that we also avoid letting anger toward our neighbor go unaddressed. In the same way, because of the connection between our vertical and horizontal relationships, your neighbor actually has an interest that you don't just do religious acts, that you just don't have pious deeds, but that you do them with wholeness, with completeness. And that leads us to the second thing that we need to see in these verses. There is an inherent danger. There is an inherent danger. It's kind of unique to religious practice. It's a danger that we must avoid. Your neighbor, again, doesn't know this, but your neighbor needs you to avoid it. You'll notice it. It's not a surprise. It's right here. I'm just preaching the Bible. Are you okay with that? Are you following along? In each of the three examples of religious practice, Jesus says, do not be like the <laughs> the Pharisee. There it is, the hypocrites. He actually doesn't say Pharisees here. That's how we've come to think of them. Beware, Jesus says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's what the hypocrites do. That is not true piety. That's not, true. That's not the true practice of your faith. Practice your religion like the hypocrites, Jesus says, and you will not have any reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, we usually think of hypocrisy as being fake. When somebody says one thing, but their actions don't back up what they say. But I want you to notice here, that these hypocrites, oh, they do what they say. Absolutely. Their problem is not that they don't 
practice what they preach. Hypocrisy, at least in Matthew's gospel, is not about being fake. The nature of this hypocrisy is not that they don't actually go out and do righteousness, but that they do so with the wrong motive. It's incomplete. They do religious things in order to be praised by others for their devotion. Hypocrisy, then, is not fakeness, pretending to do things that you actually don't do. Hypocrisy is incompleteness, which is why Jesus says, hey, watch out for it. Your righteousness, he says, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, must exceed that of the Pharisees. You must be whole. You must be complete. You must be virtuous just as your heavenly Father is whole, complete. And that includes in your religious practice. Now, many who have seen um, plenty of religious hypocrites doing pious acts to be seen by others are so disgusted by it that they vow to not be religious at all. I'm not speaking to any of them today because here you are. There's a lot of people that live around you and live around this church who have nothing to do with institutional religion. You hear that? I'm not going to church. I don't need organized religion. All the hypocrites, all the hypocrites. But if that's the posture you take, and again, that's not you because you're, you're here, but this is one possible response to the inherent danger. And this is an inherent danger for religious people. This is not going to work, though. If, if you take that as your approach to, well, I'm staying away from the danger altogether. No piety for me. No religious acts. Call myself a crowd. I'm going to join those non-practicing Christians, right? That sounds pretty good. Well, remember, Matthew 5, 16 has told us that you must let your light shine before people. There there is a a need for your good works to be seen, Matthew 5, 16 says. Again, Jesus does not offer as a cure for hypocrisy impiety, irreligion. That's not the way to solve the problem. Jesus expects us to do pious deeds. He encourages charity. He encourages prayer. He encourages fasting. He expects us to practice our faith. But he warns of doing them in order to be praised by others, in order to be seen by others. What Jesus is against is a culture of spiritual elitism that is set up by incompleteness in our hearts. I've been in some churches where there's no danger of hypocrisy because there's no piety. There's no love for God. Very little spiritual discipline is encouraged. Nah, you don't need to read your Bible. Nah, we don't need to pray. Fasting, not necessary. Very little religious activity other than showing up to church. 
that's no cure. That's no, that's no way to solve the inherent problem, right? I've been in other churches where you can feel, even if you can't articulate, you can feel what's going on in the examples that Jesus gives, warning us of the inherent danger. So let's just look at them again. When you give to the needy, verse 2, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Now, you understand, don't you, that this wasn't literally happening. Commentators will tell you that it's not likely that there was real trumpets going off. Hey, everybody, dun, 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 watch what I'm about to do. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But he's, he's setting up a reality that you, you feel like that's what's happening, right? You know what I'm talking about? Even collectively, churches feel this temptation. Just let me say it as a pastor. It is very tempting to want to sound a trumpet to the world of all the good deeds that we do around here. Yes? Social media gives us a nice little avenue to brag to everyone of how pious we are. How much good we do in our community. Even though you don't notice it, let me tell you. All the great things that we do. And the atmosphere feels like this. If only you were as sacrificial as we were. You see, for first century Jews, especially after the destruction of the temple, charity, giving to the needy, was seen as a substitute for sacrifices. Since there was no temple, giving to charity was like sacrificing. And for some, and for some Christians in many churches, the atmosphere feels like we are the sacrificial people. Look how pious we are. Then Jesus gives a second example. And when you pray, verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, don't read this in an overly literalistic way and say, well, Pastor Daryl just gave a prayer in public, in the church. Don't move to impiety. That's not what Jesus is encouraging here. The problem is not with public prayer. Of course, it's praying in a way in order to be seen by others, right? The one who prays and almost prays not to God, but to the audience. <laughs> you know, come on, Christians. We are really good at that. And I mean, by that I mean we're really bad for doing that. But it's a, it's a common problem. And sometimes it's kind of funny, isn't it? We start preaching to one another in our prayers rather than actually talking to God. Oh, man, I've done that. I do it a lot, yes. It's one of the scariest things about praying in public. And as a pastor, I get asked to do it all the time. And you know what the feel is? You should be as sacred as I am. You should be as connected to God as I am. Christians, brothers and sisters, we need to fight against a culture that feels like that. You know, it's this kind of spiritual culture where it's almost like we're looking for the opportunity to spiritually dunk on each other. Yes? <laughs> 
Let me ask you a question. This is rhetorical speech. You don't have to say this out loud. So I want you to think about this. Do you pray before a meal? <laughs> okay. My answer is, for me personally, just usually, but not always. You ever been in that setting where it's like a little strange to start to pray before a meal? Maybe you're eating with a non-believer, with a bunch of non-believers. What are you going to do right here? Hey, before we pray, before we eat, just want you to know, I talked to God. So let us bow our heads and pray. This happened to Mindy and I recently. We were having dinner with a non-Christian couple, and I've We've had dinner with them a few times, and I've often said, is it okay if we pray? But in this occasion, it was like, maybe this feels weird if we were to stop and say that. So I didn't pray for eight. Impious Christian. Mindy and I have a friend. Uh, her, she's a pastor's wife. Her husband's in ministry, and she told us recently about uh, playing a game, playing a board game with her family, and... She was getting annoyed because every time her dad spun the wheel for the board game and got the right number, he'd say, well, praise the Lord. Well, praise the Lord. And she's a pastor's wife, faithful, loves Jesus. And finally she said, I've had enough. I don't think God cares that you got a seven on that roll. It's this atmosphere, right? It's this feel that says, you should be as sacred as I am. Jesus says, watch out. Watch out. Or then he gives this other one. He says, and when you fast, verse 16, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Again, Jesus is probably speaking uh, in a way that we shouldn't take overly literalistic. They probably didn't actually, you know, mar their faces up, but uh, have you ever seen a little kid who's clearly wanting you to know how frustrated they are? Contortion of the face. That's the picture. That's the feel that Jesus says, watch out, watch out. Now, in this particular case, I think that we actually have it almost exactly backwards in our day. Because fasting is not something that most Western Christians practice very much. Fasting, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, fasting in the Bible is not about getting something. We'll come back to this in a moment. Fasting is the appropriate response of sorrow. It's the proper response in moments of pain and suffering. It's a way of lamenting. But Jesus said, don't create a culture that says, don't fight against a Christian culture that says, if only you suffered like I do. Ironically, I think this means that we need to be better at lamenting. We go to funerals and we call them celebrations instead of mourning. We have a big feast when someone dies, when actually, biblically, it's fasting that is called for. So watch out, Jesus is saying. Watch out for these all-too-common temptations that are inherent 
with religious activity. You're religious people. That's why you're here. Fight against this kind of a culture. How do we do that? Don't do it by moving to impiety. Don't get rid of all charitable giving and all prayer and all fasting. But watch out for the danger. Verses 19 to 21, which, by the way, uh, Pastor Darrell in a few weeks is going to probably come back to these verses because they're probably transitional verses. They go with both what precedes, what we're looking at now, and with the passage that follows. There is clearly a connection, though, to verses 19 to 21 and treasure to this theme of reward that we're looking at today. And verses 19 to 21 tell us what Jesus has warned about in these verses. There is a reward that comes from a false culture of sacrifice, from a false culture of sacredness, from a false culture of suffering. There is a reward that comes, but it's the reward that comes and goes in a flash. It's the reward that moths and rust can corrupt. And it leaves you empty. Verse 21 warns then that if your, if your reward, if your treasure is transient like that, if you are just in for what everybody else can think about you, what everybody else thinks about you, then your reward, if your reward lasts no longer than the sound of human applause can be sustained, then that's where your heart is. That's who you really are. And Jesus is warning here, you will be as transient as your treasure. So watch out. Now, lastly, all right, if this is a danger for us religious people, I feel it, I sense it. What is the proper way then to practice our faith? How do we go about doing religious practices for the, the honest, real reward that Jesus wants us to seek? Jesus gives us an answer in these verses. Again, I'm just going to preach the Bible. That's okay with you. So straight up, uh, this isn't hard to see here. Jesus gives us an answer. There are ways not to practice your religion. We just looked at that. There's a culture that we don't want to have as Christians and as a church, but there are ways we ought to do it. And in each of the three examples, there's a theme that stands out. You see it. It's clear. For example, let me just read it to you. Matthew 6, 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Matthew 6, 17 and 18. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Do you see it? Do you see the repeated theme? In order to combat the temptation toward hypocrisy, incompleteness, in the practice of the faith, Jesus counsels us to practice our faith quietly. Now, notice first, Jesus counsels us to keep a quiet heart. To resolve to practice the faith from deep down in keeping with your deepest convictions. So when Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, you 
can't take that overly literalistic, right? It just doesn't even make sense. But the point that he is making is that this kind of pious act, charitable giving, needs to be entirely a matter of private decision. One should not feel coerced from anywhere other than from deep conviction, from deep within. And the action should follow because it is in line with who you really are and where your treasure really is. Not with the hope of being seen as something that deep within is really not who you are. That's what Jesus is saying. And commentators suggest that what we find in Matthew chapter 25, verses 37 to 40, you don't have to turn there, you'll remember this passage, offers us an example of what a quiet heart looks like. Jesus offers a reward to the righteous for the good works that they have done. And their response to him is, when did we do that? You remember it? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Remind us, Lord, I don't remember ever doing that. I don't remember ever doing that. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's why you're getting rewarded. Because those were actions that came from deep within, from who you really are, from the deepest convictions. And so the deeds flow out of that. You know this, right? The most rewarding actions are those that flow naturally out of a quiet heart of genuine love. It makes a huge difference if it's somebody's birthday and you give them a gift because you almost can't help it, or you give them a gift because you're like, oh, yeah, it's their birthday, right? You can almost feel the difference. One feels obligated because of what the other person will think of me, and the other one flows out of genuine love. This is the key to true religious practice and to the reward that Jesus promises comes from it. Did you come to church this morning because of some outward compulsion? What someone else will think of you? What your spouse will think of you? What your missional family, because they're meeting tonight, is going to think of you if you didn't show up today? Because of what your pastors are going to think of you? Oh, yeah, we, and by the way, we know this. If you're here or not. Is that why you came? Is that why you came? Or did you come because of a deep, inward hope? Do you read your Bible and pray because you need to impress someone, including God, or because you love someone? And even if no one else knows, your quiet heart leads you to this kind of love. The key to having a quiet heart then is to practice your faith. Jesus says, practice it before a quiet, a quiet hearer. I had to use an H here. You'll see why. Before a quiet hearer. Why else would he say when you pray, go in, shut your door so that no one else will even notice? Why pray in secret? It's only because you know there is someone there in the quiet place, someone who meets you when and where no one else can. Jesus, of course, in what he says about prayer here is not forbidding public prayer or even being noticed for praying. 
But here's the thing. If all the praying you ever do is the culturally expected things like praying in a worship service or praying with your family before a meal, if these are the only prayers you ever pray, then you're just like the hypocrites. I'm asking you this question. You go to church. Good. You should. You pray before meals. Good. Keep it up. But do you pray when no one sees? Do you pray when no one knows? Don't answer that question out loud, by the way, because we don't need to know. That's the whole point. At issue here is the expectation that the practice of faith is done because the disciple seeks to engage with God, the one who is, who doesn't just see in secret, the one who is in secret, the God who is there even though he is not seen. That, by the way, is the essence of true faith. As Hebrews eleven six tells us, the one who would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he is there, and that he rewards those who seek him. Fasting, by the way, is particularly useful to demonstrate this last point. The reason that people fasted in the Bible, again, was not because of what they would get from it, even though I know that's the reason that most people in the West fast today, if we do at all. Most Christians I know talk about fasting only for its health benefits, Intermittent fasting, we call it. Or because they're hoping to get something from God. I'm praying about this thing, and so I'm going to fast so that God will tell me what I should do. But biblical fasting is done not for some benefit, but in response to some sacred and grievous moment. In other words, fasting was done in response to holy moments precisely because the faithful saw in solemn times the sacredness of those moments. Fasting is the response of a whole person to a sacred moment. We're not very good at that in the West. We drop our flags to half-mast and then get on with our day. But in the Bible... If fasting is not done in order to get something, then why does Jesus speak of it, along with the other religious practices, as something the Father will reward? I thought we said at the beginning of the sermon that the whole reason for these religious acts was for the reward that comes from it. And here we're saying that fasting was particularly a discipline that was not done for the benefit of getting something. So make sense of that, preacher. Well, did you notice that in these verses, nothing is said explicitly about, explicitly about what the reward is? Did you notice that? I, we know what the reward is if you do it like the hypocrites. It's the praise of others. Nice. And now it's done. Yeah? What's the reward that we're after? What is the reward that the Father is going to give us? How will the Father reward secret charity, prayer, fasting, and the other spiritual di disciplines? What is the reward that comes from faithful religious practice? 
On the one hand, it's, not, it's never specified. And I think that's because if it were, it would create the very problem that these verses are meant to resolve. Think of it. Just tell me what the reward is, and I will get out my Excel spreadsheet and figure out if it's worth it. Tell me what I will get for my charity. Tell me what I get for the discipline of prayer, even private prayer. Tell me what I'm going to get from my fasting, and I will decide if it's worth it. This kind of cost-benefit analysis will not work, Jesus says, for the righteousness that we must have to enter the kingdom of God. It just doesn't work that way. It does in the kingdoms of men where we do things for the glory that we can get, that others can see. But in the kingdom of God, the reward must remain unspecified. Because the quiet heart comes before the quiet hearer in order to receive the quiet hope. The reward is unspecified because there's no way to put a price to it. And yet so many people still think that what Christianity is all about is getting to heaven and getting our reward. But Jesus shows us that true religion is practiced not because of the goodness that we can find in it, but because God himself, who alone is good, summons his people to share in his goodness and then to extend it to others. What are the rewards for the religious? What do we actually get for the religious devotion and practice? On the one hand, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for us. But on the other hand, Matthew 6, 1, which says here in the ESV, our reward is, uh, you will get a reward from the Father. Actually, in the New American Standard has this, Christian Standard Bible has this, is a reward with the Father. It's a reward that's found right there in his presence, by his side. So on the other hand, now that Jesus has come, we do know what the reward is. Because in Jesus, we have come to know the one true God. We know who he is. We know what he is like. Through Jesus, we engage with him. We interact with him. We live in his kingdom that has truly come. We share him and his goodness in our charitable deeds that do not need a trumpet to announce them to the world. Day by day, faithful Christians all over the planet in every generation go about quiet acts of service sharing with others in Jesus' name. And day by day, the world has been transformed. Day by day, Christians, faithful Christians, for generations have met with God in private prayer. Meeting with a God who is there even though he cannot be seen. And are led day by day by a shepherd to be his people, and the world has been changed. Day by day, we are encouraged to see the world as God does. Yes, even with its pain and sorrows. And so for generations, faithful Christians have entered into seasons of fasting, of grief, 
Because God grieves. And grieving with God, we hold out hope to the world until by his grace, the fasting is over. The feast begins and he wipes every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now, impress upon our hearts what our Lord Jesus has taught us. We're going to need a lot of wisdom. Rather than a set of cold, impersonal rules to follow, Jesus gives us a mandate that's all about engaging with the God who is there and who in Jesus Christ has been made plain for all to see and who by his Holy Spirit will give us wisdom for the kind of people we are meant to be. So teach us, O Lord, and give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? 